Well, brothers and sisters, as we turn our attention to hearing the Word of God through the preaching of His Word, uh, let us turn in Scripture together to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And as you're turning there, a question to begin us thinking this morning, how comfortable are you in this world? How comfortable would you say you are? You know, in many ways, we live in a society with great prosperity, even in terms of human history, right? All the developments of technology that are out there. We can control the climate inside our buildings. Uh, in the winter, we can keep them warm. In the summer, we can cool them down. We, we now have the ability to have little computers in our hands with instant information through the Internet, being able to connect with people anytime through smartphone technology. Then we also are living in a time of modern medicine, which... And God's kindness allows us to live longer lives than many humans could ever dream of in the past. Then there's also, in many ways, the economic advancement that we've had in our country with success, financial success that, that takes place over the years as many Americans accumulate money and wealth. And as people climb the, the social ladder in our society, we are truly a prosperous society. But brothers and sisters, there's a danger to living in the midst of such prosperity. And it's a danger that the church we read of here this morning finds itself in. So I hope it's a danger that we will all take seriously as we read here from Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. So let's read together these verses. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Father, as we turn our attention to hearing Your Word preached, we pray that You will, through the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You will illumine our minds as You renew our minds with the truths of Your Word, that this will be far more than a man speaking Your truth to Your people, but that through me, Father, Your Word will be known. Your Word will be followed. Your Word will reveal Jesus Christ so that Your Word will lead us to worship You and to live in Christ with great wisdom and faithfulness in the midst of a corrupt and sinful world. So we pray You will bless our time here as we draw attention to Your Word by asking for Your blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So then, what does this letter in the book of Revelation reveal to us? Well, here's how I would summarize it best. Receive Christ's love by repenting of your comfort and relying on His gospel until He returns. I know that's long. It's filled with meaning. Listen again. Receive Christ's love by repenting of your comfort in this world and relying on His gospel until He returns. And this is seen through this letter with four L's. Four L's. So, uh, simply to work through this letter, we begin with the Laodiceans and then move on to those who are lukewarm. Next, we show that they are exposed as lazy or laziness. And then finally, the importance of the final L, listening. So Laodiceans, lukewarm, laziness, and listening. Let's begin then in verse 14 by considering this church of Laodicea. Of course, throughout this book of Revelation, God is revealing Jesus Christ in His resurrection glory who is ruling and reigning from heaven. This revelation is being given by God to the Apostle John. John then is recording these symbolic visions to encourage seven churches in Asia Minor, which then come to represent all of Christ's churches through this age. And so after a, an opening vision of Christ in all of His glory, Jesus sends a special letter to each of these seven churches both commending their faithfulness and rebuking them for their unfaithfulness. 
And it's through these letters then that all churches are to wrestle with our faithfulness and with our unfaithfulness so that we can overcome living in this corrupt and sinful world. And so we then read here in verse 14, the beginning of this letter, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, what do we know then about this city of Laodicea where this church is found? Well, it's about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia where the, the previous letter was written. But there were two major trade routes that went through the city, which led it to become a prosperous uh, commercial and banking center. Laodicea then was known for its great wealth and prosperity. Even after this city went through a major earthquake and the Roman Empire was willing to give it money, they decided they would handle it themselves. That's how rich they were. That's how wealthy they were. But the city also struggled with not having a water supply. So it had to rely on water that was piped in from hot springs that were several miles away. And because of the stone pipes that then essentially brought this water into the city, their water was lukewarm and impure with a high concentration of minerals. And so it's this, the church that meets in this city that is receiving this letter. And how does Christ open the letter? As he always does, by pointing them and directing them to himself. And so we have a description of Christ as verse 14 continues. We read, these things says the Amen. Now, this is likely drawn from Isaiah 65, verses 13 to 16. So let's, let's, let's turn there together if you have Bible in front of you. Because here we have a, contra a contrast between God's faithful servants and with his sinful people. Israel. And so let's hear then from the prophet Isaiah as he speaks the word of God. Uh, here in Isaiah 65, we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Now, this is what I want us to see in verse 16. What is translated here, God of truth, twice, should be translated from the Hebrew, the God of the Amen. The God of Amen. See, it's Amen that confirms the truth of God, which is why we end our prayers by saying Amen. May it be so, or so be it. 
So as Christ uses this title of himself as the Amen, he is emphasizing that he is God and that he is the truth. Which is why then his words in this letter are true. And the church needs to hear these words of truth even if they hurt. Even when they're hard to hear. But then we go on in Revelation 3 to continue reading these descriptions of Christ that not only is He the Amen, but we also see in verse 14, He is the faithful and true witness. Now, in earlier in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. But this adds to Christ as the Amen, as the true one, by saying He has remained faithful to God's will. And he has fulfilled God's covenant promises, which is why his true witness can be trusted. He is both true and trustworthy. You see, Christ makes no mistakes or errors when he speaks, but his word is completely reliable. Which is another reason why this church needs to hear these words from Christ. See, Christ is true. Christ is trustworthy. But then third, we want to see in verse 14 that he is also the beginning of the creation of God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Christ is the first created being, but that he is the source of all creation. He is the originator of all creation, that he is the creator of all as the word of God. As the same author here, John, wrote in his gospel at the beginning of his gospel, of Christ, that he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. And because Christ is our creator, then that means he is the one in authority over us. So we see that Christ is true. His word is true. That Christ's word is trustworthy. And finally, Christ's word is authoritative. has authority over us. But the problem is, this church in Laodicea has forgotten who Jesus is. Despite their claim to be Christian, they're not living by faith in His salvation or under His authority as their heavenly King. But they've lost sight of who He is, of His judgment of sin, of His righteousness in this world, and of this world's opposition to Him. So you see, they may have prayed with amen on their lips, but their hearts weren't in it. And they denied Christ's lordship over His creation as they loved the world and the things of this world. Which is why Grant Osborne writes of this church, and of this letter, he says, This is a message to the Laodiceans. In their wealth and complacency, they, uh, they thought of themselves as in control. But Jesus is telling them that he alone controls creation. He is the very source of their wealth and power. So you see, this church needs correction. And they need the correction that comes through the words of Christ. 
So, brothers and sisters, have we begun to forget who Christ is ourselves? Do we recognize all of his words as trustworthy and true and authoritative to us? Or do we, in all of our prosperity, begin to see ourselves as the ones in control? And ourselves as the one who evaluate Christ and his claims and his truths in Scripture. Will we submit to his words even when it hurts? Even when they're hard to hear? Look, Satan leads us to doubt Christ and this world tempts us to be distracted from Christ. But this is why we need to regularly hear from God through his word and scripture. Why we're then a people who gather together to hear his word preached. Why we're a people who devote ourselves to reading God's Word and studying God's Word and meditating on God's Word so that His voice will ring crystal clear through our lives. This is what the church of Laodicea had lost. And so then this brings us to the second L in the letter. Lukewarm which is found in verses 15 to 16. Now we come to Christ's words to his church. We read him saying, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. See, he knows their works like he knows the works of all the churches. But unlike most of the churches, there's nothing here to commend, is there? There's nothing good for him to recognize in this church. Even in the other churches, that he rebukes for their unfaithfulness. He will bring out works of faithfulness. But not this church. There's only words of rebuke. There's nothing to commend. And so what does he say of them? That they are neither cold nor hot. Now what does it mean to be cold or hot? And a very common view today, I'm convinced, is wrong. But there are two ways of considering this whole idea, two ways to interpret these opposite temperatures. First, that cold and hot here represent two opposite spiritual conditions. So if you're cold, you're essentially an unbeliever. If you're hot, you're a believer. Being hot then would mean to live by the strength of the Holy Spirit as you believe in Christ, while being cold would mean to live by your own strength and sin as you live in unbelief. But here's the question. Why would Christ prefer his church to be cold in unbelief rather than lukewarm? He doesn't want his people to be cold-hearted unbelievers. So I'm not convinced by this view. That's why I think the second view makes more sense here where it connects the cold and hot here to the neighboring city's water supplies. See, if you, you know the area, to the north of the city of Laodicea was another city known, uh, that, that was uh, Hierapolis. And in Hierapolis, they were known for their hot springs. 
while to the east was another city we've heard of called Colossae. Of course, a letter of the New Testament was written to the Colossians. But in Colossae, they were known for their cold and refreshing drinking water. But as we've already seen, Laodicea's water was neither. They had neither hot or cold water. They were neither cold or hot, but their water reached the city from being piped in these hot springs several miles away, which left their water lukewarm and polluted with minerals, which left a bad taste in your mouth and would make you sick. Now, if you're like me, you enjoy a nice glass of ice-cold water. Of course, our water today is goes through a purification process. It's treated to taste good. And so we enjoy it. And, and I also enjoy hot drinks like tea or coffee, which can refresh myself as I drink it. But have you ever tasted warm, hard water filled with minerals? It's disgusting. My natural response is to spit it out. Well, here's Christ's point. This church has become like their city's water supply. Their works neither brought soul refreshment or spiritual health, but they were worthless. Which is why Jesus goes on to say, I could wish you were cold or hot. He would prefer that they either be cold or hot, because then they would be valuable to his kingdom. But they are not, because they have compromised their devotion to Christ through comfort and contentment in this fallen world. See, their prosperity had dulled their senses in recognizing their need for Christ as their attention had turned to the pleasures of this world. And so they focused on their physical lives in this world rather than on their spiritual lives and their relationship with God. Which is why Laodicea, we read, is like lukewarm water. Verse 16, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, what does Jesus say? I will vomit you out of my mouth. See, this was undrinkable water. Now imagine for a moment, if we shared a church meal together here as as a church, we had a fellowship meal and we decide to fill some pitchers with water to drink, but out of the faucet comes dirty, warm water. I know what we would do. We would tell Mike to run to the store and buy some bottled water, preferably refrigerated. But let's say our deacon leaves to the store to buy some clean bottles of water. And while he's away, Christ comes. And he says to us, you, Cornerstone, are like this polluted water. And then he takes a cup to drink some of it, and he spits it out. That's what he's doing here through this letter. He's saying to this church, I will vomit you out of my mouth because they've compromised their faith in comfort and contentment in this world. What 
Strong words of sobering rebuke. These are strong words of Christ's judgment against His church. He will throw them up. He is about to forcefully expel these Christians from His body. That's what it means to be lukewarm. But then we come to the third L. The third L of laziness in verses 17 and 19. Now, they were busy, okay? They were doing things. But they were spiritually lazy. And in these verses now, Christ moves from the city's water supply to directly explain this church's sinful problem. They are rich and wealthy. They're blessed with lots of money. Look at verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. This is the danger of money. Now, Jesus also warns his disciples about riches that will then draw us away from the gospel and his word. Uh, he, he does so, for example, in his parable of the sower, you may remember, in Matthew 13. He gives this parable, and then he goes on to explain this parable. And listen to how Jesus explains the seed that fell among thorns. He says, now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And he becomes unfruitful. And brothers and sisters, this wasn't just a story Jesus told. This happened in the church of Laodicea. That's why the Apostle Paul also warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 10 to 12, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And listen, for some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Again, what has happened here in the church of Laodicea? See, this is their problem. In their love of money, this church became content with what they had, and they didn't see themselves as needing anything. Isn't this tragic? With all of their apparent success in this world, they assume everything is fine with God. But they are deceiving themselves, not realizing how far they have drifted from Jesus in their love for the things of this world. How easy then money and riches can feed our sinful pride. Did you notice how they describe themselves? I am. I have. I have. What's their focus? Themselves. And what they have gained through their hard work, not on Christ and what He has given to them by His grace. And it's hard for me not to see America here in these verses with how prosperous we are as a society. You know, by the world's standards, we are spoiled rich. And this became clear to me back when I was in college and I took a mission trip down to Mexico. So I was down there in Mexico and we were doing various things. But on Sunday, 
we went to a local church, and this is in rural Mexico, okay? The, the church building was not even finished being built, okay? Very simple concrete structure or stucco structure. We go in there. I mean, there's no air conditioning. There, 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 there's no cushion pews. And as we go and their worship begins, do you know what I see? There's no running water. These people aren't wearing clean clothes. But you know what I see? I see vibrant joy in their hearts as they worship. And I look at them as an American college student. And I go, as a Christian, I've never experienced that kind of joy. See, I came to recognize that all the, the money and prosperity and success, it doesn't give us the satisfaction and joy in life that we think it can. And we wind up fooling ourselves as we pursue these things. And do you know with all of our money and prosperity, what we do have? More psychologists than anywhere else in the world. More needs for counseling. With high satisfaction, uh, high levels of dissatisfaction and misery. Where we're all living dissatisfied, busy, frustrating lives. See, our health, our, our wealth will not bring us this satisfaction or joy. But seeking these pleasures can keep us distracted from Christ. To where we won't recognize our need of Him. And that's really the problem here. It's not only that they're living in sin. But what, what do we see of them in verse 17? In their pride... Christ says, they do not know their true condition. They think everything's okay. But he exposes the truth in this letter through five words of their real condition. That's how verse 17 ends. Listen to these words to describe their condition. They are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They're wretched. In the midst of all their wealth and prosperity, they're wretched. It's the same word Paul declares in Romans 7.24 as he recognizes his sin. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who can deliver me? Or who will deliver me from this body of death? They're wretched and they don't know it. We also see here they're miserable and they don't know. This miserable, this misery is a, a hopelessness that we have through our sin. It's why Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, where he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. That word pitiable here is translated miserable. So they're wretched, they don't know it. They're miserable and they don't know it. And now we see they are poor and don't know it. Now, wait a minute. Aren't they rich? Don't they have money and wealth? They boast of their riches and wealth. 
But there is a poverty of soul that takes place as we pursue the things of this world in our sin. So they are spiritually poor. Their souls are poor. But then they're also blind. They're spiritually blind. Of course, they can see with their eyes. But they're blind to God's truth and the state of their own souls and their sinfulness. Which is why then we also read they, they're not only wretched and miserable and poor and blind, but they're also described as naked. And once more, this is spiritual nakedness. Now, they undoubtedly had nice and expensive clothes. After all, Laodicea was known for its soft black wool, which would make expensive and fashionable garments. But this only covered the nakedness of their souls, which exposes their sin. So Christ here confronts them with who they really are. He no longer wants them to boast in what they have, but to recognize their condition in sin. And how should they then respond to this sinfulness? Verse 18, since they are poor, blind, and naked, they need to buy three things from Christ. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. It's the first one. You see, they have been buying the wrong thing. So Christ counsels them to find in him true riches that the world cannot provide. You know, the language here is, is Christ is a counselor. He, he, he comes to them and counsels them. He is our wonderful counselor, and he gives them counsel for the good of their souls. And so when he speaks to them of how to respond. As he offers his counsel, you know what he doesn't tell them to do? Try harder. Do better. Seek to reform yourselves, to improve your spirituality. That's not what he does. But he invites them to receive his gospel treasures. And this idea of buying is, is also drawn from Isaiah. So let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 3. Because here we read of how the goodness of God is freely offered to his people, ultimately through Christ. Isaiah 55. Listen to these words. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear to me and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. What does it mean then to buy? Well, you don't buy with money. You buy by coming to the one who invites you, 
to receive the everlasting covenant of blessing. You buy by coming through faith to Jesus Christ. But what do we buy through our faith in Christ? Well, again, there's three things here that are mentioned. And they match the three descriptions that were given in the previous verse. So first, instead of remaining poor, what have we seen you buy? You buy from Christ gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And brothers and sisters, Christ is the purest of gold. I mean, he is the treasure hidden in a field. He is the pearl of great price. And he was refined by the fire of judgment on the cross. Where all of the impurity of sin was removed as Christ sacrificed himself for us under the wrath of God so that he would be the purest of gold, our treasure. But not only, remember, are they blind, not only, by the way, are they poor, and so they need Christ as their gold. Second, they're naked, which is why they need to buy from Christ white garments to be clothed. That's what we go on to read in Verse 18, and by white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Did you, now, do you remember how Adam and Eve originally lived in the garden in the presence of God? What does Genesis say? They were naked and not ashamed. But once they sin against God, and they come under the judgment of God, what happens in their nakedness? Their sin against God brings shame. And so in this fallen and sinful world, to be naked is to be full of shame. Which is why we need to be covered. And what did God do for Adam and Eve? Even in their sin? He provided them with the bloody skins of animals. So they would be covered. And Christ, too, covers us with his blood, the blood of the cross. And so they need to be covered. And here it's called white garments, which through the book of Revelation represents the righteousness of Christ, both in our justification and in our sanctification. That by faith in Christ... His righteousness becomes ours in God's eyes. And God is at work to shape and mold us and transform us more and more into this righteousness through our lives. All of this happens through the covering of white robes in Christ's blood. So, they are poor, and they need Christ as their gold. They are naked, and they need Christ as their white 
garments, but finally they are blind. So instead of remaining blind, what are they to buy from Christ? The end of verse 18, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, this city was likely well known for its medical school of the day, which produced many healing salves or medicines. This didn't change the fact that they remained spiritually blind in their sin, which is why they needed their eyes to be anointed by Christ so they would clearly see their standing before God and that their souls are, would be healed then by Christ. And through His sacrifice of Himself for sinners. So what is Christ saying to buy from Him? To, to look to Him and see? But the Gospel. The Gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is something that in all their success and their prosperity, they can never gain from this world. But why? Why does Christ provide them with spiritual gold and clothes and salve? It's because He loves them. Look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Here we see Christ's heart of compassion for His church as they become comfortable in this world. You see, even with strong words of judgment, what does Christ do before He will vomit them out of His mouth? He pleads with them. And He calls on them to repent. Because Christ's hard confrontation is also filled with His love of compassion. But love requires rebuke when you're headed in a dangerous direction, doesn't it? And love then requires chastening or discipline when you're harming yourself or your eternal soul. So what's most loving to us in our sin, brothers and sisters, is not to ignore our sin, is not to hide our sin, is not to avoid confrontation with one another in our sin, but is to receive the rebuke of Christ through the Scriptures. Because Christ loves us too much to leave us in our sin. So here Christ echoes Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Which is why then we go on to read in verse 19, Therefore be zealous and repent. Because this is what is best for them. See, in, in, instead of being comfortable as lukewarm Christians, they must become zealous 
to draw close to Christ. And this is done by repenting of their sins, by turning away from their sins and turning to Christ and trusting in Him and all that He provides for us freely by His grace. He is the one who provides for the very needs of their souls these precious promises of grace. They're far greater than any temporary pleasure that this world could provide for them. Brothers and sisters, as much as this kind of spiritual laziness describes us, we need to be zealous and to repent too. Because with all of our prosperity and all of our possessions, it may just seem like everything is fine going on in our lives. But may we not be deceived or puffed up in our pride or self-reliance, but let our, us humble ourselves by looking to the cross. How great is Christ's love for us that He provides all that we need for our salvation and our eternal life in Him. And if you don't yet know of this love this morning, then you too can receive such love by repenting of your sins, and by trusting in Christ through faith in Christ's sacrifice of love for sinners like you and like me, repent and receive Christ as your Savior. What we go on to see here is as Christians, we are to continue repenting and receiving the forgiveness of sins through Christ, who is our Savior. Which then brings us to the final L in verses 20 to 22 of listening. Listening because Christ's love for his church here leads him to extend an invitation. Let's read verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, this verse is often misunderstood when it's used in our evangelism. The idea here is that Christ is calling on unbelievers to invite him in, to, to invite them into their hearts. But did you see the context here? Christ is not calling on unbelievers to come to him. This is given to a church. He's calling on believers to repent and return to Christ. Because Christ has been dislodged from their hearts through their sinful comfort in this world. But he wants to be in their hearts, which is why he's knocking at the door. This alludes then to the Song of Solomon in uh, the song 5-2, when the bride says of her beloved, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And since the church is the body and bride of Christ, this also is the voice of Christ. To hear then how as he is knocking on the door, 
and asking for them to open to him how his heart of love for his people is heard. And for all those who hear Christ's voice and who open the door, what does he say to them? That he will come in, not that he will chide them, not that he will scold them, but he warmly comes in to spend time in fellowship with them. And not only does he come in, but he dines with us. Now, eating together in the ancient world meant far more than it does today. You and I may go out and share a meal together at a restaurant. But in this society, to eat together was to have fellowship with one another. To enjoy the relationship that you share together. And this meal is shared because of the intimate relationship that Christ has for his people. And so he lives in communion with them by sharing a meal with them. This invitation then is not one of conversion, but it's an invitation to communion. And while we will wait for the future wedding banquet that is promised by Christ to his bride when he returns, we also see him now inviting his church to banquet with him through the Lord's Supper, where we then receive his grace and enjoy the fellowship that we have with him. Do you see then how our salvation does not depend on our works? Our salvation is given freely by the grace of Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. But listen, our enjoyment of Jesus does depend on our repentance and our obedience. We are the ones who open the door to Christ through our repentance and faith which then leads us to enjoy the fellowship and communion we have with Christ. But if that's not enough, brothers and sisters, there's more. Look at the promise of verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So when we overcome living in this corrupt and sinful world, Christ will then grant us to sit with him on his throne. It's amazing. Now, he has already gone before us and overcome the world so that now he is sitting with his father on his throne. But what's amazing here is that we will then join with Christ in reigning over the world to come. And when Christ, what Christ has already accomplished through his death and resurrection, listen, we will one day share in this when he returns. I mean, who's worthy of these things? But it is what Christ promises to unworthy Sinners who are saved by His grace. Which brings us to verse 22. 
as with the other letters, this one ends with a final call to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which is why all churches are to ask ourselves, are we like the church of Laodicea? Well, let's ask it a different way. What does Cornerstone Fellowship Church taste like to Jesus? Are we refreshing to Christ? Or are we revolting to Christ? And as your pastor, I have been wrestling over this question. I think it's good for us as a church to continue wrestling over this question. Have we become lukewarm and comfortable in our prosperity as we continue living in this world? Because as much as this may be true, Christ's heart warns us of what happens when we live this way in sin. That He will vomit us out of His mouth. But I'm also convinced that Christ's rebuke to this church is given with tears because he, of His love and how He wants us to repent and rely on Him as we live in this world. So do you hear then Christ this morning through this letter saying to us, receive my love by repenting of your comfort in this world and relying on my gospel until I return. Brothers and sisters, may we all receive Christ's love as we repent of our comfort in this world and as we rely on Christ's gospel until He returns. Here's a way we can test our lukewarmness. Based on verse 17, we can ask ourselves as a church, with all of our prosperity, are we relying on ourselves and really living as if we have need of nothing from Christ? Are we so comfortable in this world that we could continue living on fine without Christ's presence among us? Have we become comfortable in this world rather than waiting on the glories of heaven to come? See, Christ here invites us to a life of joy that is far greater than anything we can experience in this world. Because He offers us Himself in communion with Him. May you then receive Christ's love by repenting of your comfort in this world and by relying on His gospel until He returns. Let's pray. Father, these words may be convicting to us, but we also ask that You will humble us so that we will be those who yearn for communion with You through Christ. 
May we not be comfortable in this world. May we not seek the prosperity of this world, which is temporary and will pass away. But may we seek first Christ's kingdom and righteousness. Because He promises to us an eternity of love in Your presence. May we be a people living with that gospel hope as long as we're living in this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.